Okay, if you've got a Bible here, we're going to be looking in Romans chapter 9. If you haven't got a Bible here and would like to borrow one, we have some available. And all you have to do is raise your hand and the girls will bring one to you. So if you want to borrow a Bible, just raise your hand and one will come to you. And let's turn to Paul's letters to the Romans and chapter 9. Start into a section, chapters 9, 10, and 11, where Paul is dealing with some of the things that he has been talking about, questions that arise out of what he's been talking about, uh, particularly in chapter 8. And in chapters 9, 10, and 11, there are a lot of big things that Paul begins to discuss. Remember the first time many years ago now when I preached through Romans, I say I preached through Romans, I got to the end of chapter 8, looked at chapters 9, 10, and 11, and thought, I just don't feel competent to look at that. And so uh, that first time we went from chapter 8 to chapter 12, because chapter 12 does follow on naturally, um, and I left chapters 9, 10, and 11 out. Um, And I'm not saying right now that I do feel competent to look at it, because who is ever competent to preach anyway? Um, But it's some big things. Uh, issues of, uh, Paul has been saying that nothing can separate us from God's love. He's saying those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed, and so on. And then in chapter 9, he says, well, what about Israel then? Didn't God call them? And can you rely on God's word then? Because look where they are now. What about, what about predestination? Is it fair? What, what's it all about? He, it does, does God keep his word? These are some of the, the things that he looks at in these chapters. Uh, And however we handle those subjects, we need to recognize that Paul ends up, and this is the point he's working to in chapter 11, verse 33, where he says, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him, And through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So as Paul looks at these big subjects, the theme is God is good and God is always worth praising. That's the point he arrives at at the end of chapter 11. And hopefully as we work through these chapters, that's what we'll be saying as we come to the end. But let's look then at chapter 9, verse 1. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption of sons. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs. From them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all forever praised. Amen. These opening verses, particularly verses 1 to 3, which are the verses I wanted to look at this morning, lead into the chapter and we could maybe be so anxious to get into some of these big subjects 
Yeah, like verse 6, it is not as though God's word has failed. Does God change his mind? There's some of the issues he's dealing with. We can be so anxious to get into that. that we kind of gloss over those opening chapters as if, well, come on, let's get to the meat here. But I'd like to suggest that those first three verses really set the tone for all that Paul is going to be looking at. And we're not going to overlook it. Paul says, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. The first thing we see there, Paul refers to the people of Israel as his brothers. To which you might say, well, so what? Well, Paul has referred, used this term brothers many times so far in this letter to the Romans, beginning indeed in chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1 uh, and verse 13, he says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I've had among the other Gentiles. Now, what's the point? Well, here in chapter 9, he refers to those of his own race. It could be translated, to be cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. That's what the older versions say. The NIV has thought, according to the flesh, well, let's just say, um, my own race. No, well, actually, he says, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, or my natural brothers and kinsmen. In chapter 1, verse 13, he's talking not about his brothers according to the flesh, He's talking about Gentiles, those who are right outside Israel. And he says, he calls them brothers. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers. I've planned many times to come to you. I've planned many times to come to you. He's calling people outside his natural race, his brothers, because he's come into a new family. He's got brothers according to the flesh, Israel. And he's got brothers according to the spirit the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you are born again, you come into a new family. Natural family ties then are weakened and possibly broken because you now have a new family. All the way through Romans up to this point, he's been using the term brothers to people he's not yet met. But they know he, he knows they're his brothers because they're born again. They're in the same family They've got the same heavenly father. But he hasn't lost his affection for his own people. And that's what he's expressing here in chapter 9. Great sorrow, unceasing anguish for the sake of his brothers. A new family, he belongs to a new family, but he hasn't lost his affection for his natural family. When we're born again, we come into a new family. When you're born again, the lonely find a family. The church is God's family, God's household. That's how the Bible describes it. That's why when the members of the church gather together, we call it a family night. Because that's what the church is. It is a new family. And natural family ties 
get weakened or broken. Many people find that difficult. Well, we'd all find it difficult, but many people resist at that point. Let me take you back right to the start of it, the start of the gospel in Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, the end of that chapter, verse 41, we read every year Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. If you're familiar with the story, you'll know what happened. Uh, Mary and Joseph go to Jerusalem. They take Jesus. There's a whole company of them traveling there, a whole caravan of family members uh, and people from the community going up to Jerusalem. Jesus is there in the group. They go to Jerusalem. After several days there, they go home. At the end of the first day, it's probably about three days' journey, at the end of the first day, Mary and Joseph have assumed all the time that Jesus is somewhere in that caravan. When I say caravan, don't think in terms of a modern one, of course. I'm talking about camels and things, you know what I mean. And they assume Jesus is there and discover he isn't. They make their way back, I guess a bit panicking. Where is he? And they find him in the temple. And now that the point I want to make is, verse 48 of Luke chapter 2, when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. He replied, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? Notice, your father and I have been searching for you. No, I had to be in my father's house. Jesus, who's your father? (laughs) He's got two fathers. Now, you might say, uh, yes, but of course, Joseph wasn't really his father. Mary was his mother, but Joseph wasn't really his father because she can see through the Holy Spirit. But then who's your father? Are you not born again? Haven't you been born again by the Spirit? Haven't you got a new father? And right from that point, when Jesus is probably about 12 years old, he realizes family ties get weakened. I've got a heavenly father. And I've got to be about his things. I've got to be in his house. Right from the start, there's a sense of mission that takes precedence over family. And you see that then through Jesus' ministry. His mother and his brothers come to speak to him. He says, who is my mother? And he looks at those who are listening to him. Here's my mother. Here's my family. Got a new family. He calls the first disciples. There are James and John. They're with their father Zebedee. They're fishermen together. They've got a family business. And Jesus says to James and John, come follow me. And he says, they left their father and went to follow Jesus. If you think about it, Unless family ties are weakened, how on earth can the church fulfill its mission? Jesus said to his disciples, go into all the world. They could say, hey, wait a minute, can't leave my family. I've got responsibilities back home. My parents are getting older. They need me to be around. Well, one, one would-be disciple did say to Jesus, let me wait till my father's died and then I'll come follow you. Jesus said, let the dead bury their dead, follow me. The new family takes precedence over our natural family. And if we resist at that point, we're actually saying, well, we're denying 
that God is our Father and that that family must be more important. How can the church be mobilized for mission if we are tied to what mum and dad want? When I'm not talking to kids. Of course, when you're at home, you honor your father and mother and you'll obey them. Parents, if you've got children at home, of course you'll make them your priority. But it's when we grow up. Family ties can be so strong. And some people, they grow up and they've never left mom and dad. And mom and dad have never let their kids go. And so family invariably takes precedence over the church. Well, then how can the church be mobilized to reach the world? Because it's always at the mercy of family events, a party here, a birthday there, second cousin twice removed has got an anniversary, or must go, what are we doing? What are we doing? Who's, who's our father? Who are our brothers? Paul says, my heart is stirred for my brothers according to the flesh. Yeah, but his real brothers are the ones, the family he has come into. The mission of the church cannot work unless family ties are weakened. But natural affection still remains. And so at the end of John's gospel, in John chapter 19, or towards the end of John's gospel, in John chapter 19, the incredibly moving story of the crucifixion, and John 19, 26, when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, dear woman, here's your son. And to the disciple, here's your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. It wasn't that he was uncaring. He cared. He knows he's going. His mother will be bereft. She needs looking after but all through his ministry, the mission came first. And that's how it is. That's what it means to come into a new family. Have you accepted it? Have you accepted that Jesus Christ is Lord and that you have a new heavenly father and you've come into a family that takes precedence over any other? And therefore, Jesus can say, go to this nation, go to that nation, and family ties don't hold you back. You'll go with God because he is God. So we see Paul referring to this new family while referring to his natural one, my brothers according to the flesh. And then you see, yes, natural affection isn't broken. And so he speaks here of a, a passion that he's got. And really, he could hardly say it more strongly. He almost takes an oath. He says, I'm, I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. Now, what's this thing he's affirming? I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. I could wish... Literally, I could wish that I were anathema from Christ, cut off, cursed by Christ. Remember what I've just been saying? I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, nor the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ that is in, from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus 
our Lord. Remember, he didn't put the chapter divisions in. He's just saying, nothing can separate us from the love of God. But I could wish that I were cut off if it led to my natural brothers being saved. He's got deep feelings here. Great sorrow, unceasing anguish. So the kind of issues that Paul is going to start discussing in this chapter when he starts talking about the place of Israel, this is not just academic. He cares deeply. His heart is stirred about this. He's he's passionate about it. He's convinced of the facts of the gospel, and chapter 8 has made that clear. As we went through chapter 8, we drew attention to the number of times. He says, we know that, we know that, we're convinced of. What shall we say in response to this? He's thought it all through, he's convinced of the facts, but having been convinced of the facts, his heart is stirred, his heart is moved. The truth convinces your mind and moves your heart. He can't be just clinically academic about these things. He's he's aware that you're either in Christ or you're lost. He spelt that out. There's only one way of salvation in Christ. Otherwise, you're in Adam and you're lost. Well, he can't just say that clinically. But what about my people? I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish. Because he he encounters hostility from these people. But he cares about them. And it stirs him. And he said, if it were possible, I would lose my salvation if they could be saved. (laughs) That's strong feeling. He feels it keenly. He feels it deeply. Let's beware of just a cold doctrinal correctness. Let's let's never get into just a, a fascination with truth, cold discussion about the cross. Did you notice last week, those who are here, Dan was reading the story of the crucifixion. His voice broke. Emotion can't just talk about these things coldly. It's true and it touches your heart. This is the Savior we love. It grieves me when I hear people debating about hell. Is it eternal suffering? People say, we want eternal suffering. What are we talking about here? Isn't it? Can you just talk academically about hell? Doesn't it touch your heart? Doesn't it grieve you? It did Paul great sorrow, unceasing anguish in my heart. I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my natural brothers, my brothers according to the flesh. Because they're outside this. And you can't just discuss that. Oh, well, they've been rejected. Oh, God. Oh, God. There's passion there. Our minds must not be swayed by emotion. But our emotions will be affected by our minds. There are some people whose minds are swayed by emotions, so on the matter of the subject of hell, they say, I can't tolerate that idea, therefore I won't believe it. And they change their view because of emotion. No, the truth is the truth. But what is true must affect our emotions. Paul 
is passionate. He believes in election. He believes in predestination. Those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. Those he predestined, he called. Yeah, but what about those he hasn't called yet? What about those who are outside of it? He doesn't say, well, what will be will be. God's in charge. He chooses. He predestines. Let's leave it to God. No. Belief in predestination doesn't make you passive. Belief in predestination makes you passionate. Oh, God, I wish I could lose my salvation. Once saved, always say, oh, I wish I could lose my salvation for the sake of those who are outside. Deep passion. We don't just say what will be, will be. We say, oh, God, change it. I remember once reading a a mighty sermon from C.H. Spurgeon, preaching about election spelling the whole thing out, God's predestination. And he ends by saying, if you're elect, come. And then he added, and if you're not elect, still come. You think, what are you talking about? Well, yeah, we care, care. You can't just be cold about it. You can't just be doctrinally correct. I wish that I could be anathema from Christ for the sake of my brothers. He cares about it. And what does that lead to? Well, he doesn't mention it here, although it's implicit in it, but he makes it explicit in chapter 10, verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. When he says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, I I would wish that I myself were cursed from Christ for the sake of my brothers. What does he do about that? Well, he prays about it. His passion causes him to pray. And this wish that he could be, if it were possible, cut off from Christ is something he's brought before God clearly. He says, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they might be saved. That's why we pray. That's why every Friday evening or most Friday evenings we have a church prayer time. Not because we think every church should have a prayer time but because there's a passion. Oh God, we're surrounded by people who don't know you. We can't just be cold about that. We don't come to a prayer time saying, God bless me. Let's all pray for one another and all get a blessing. There's people out there. They're not saved. And we've got to pray for people to be saved. It's passion that causes us to pray. Not a sense of, we must go to the prayer meeting. God forbid. God forbid. What's the point? No, it's passion. Paul's got a passion here. He knows the truth. He knows about God's election. He's going to be talking about it in this chapter. But he, oh God, what about those who appear to be outside? What what could I do that could lead to them being saved? Oh God, save them. We care deeply. Do you know what I'm talking about? Have, have, have you drifted into just knowing things? Have you drifted into, well, maybe you wouldn't want to admit it, but not really caring? Have you drifted into thinking of evangelism as something that some people do, but it's not really my scene? Yeah, well, do you pray? 
Do you get on your knees and plead with God for people who seem resistant? People you long to have an opportunity to speak to, but that opportunity never comes. And, oh God, it's not legalism. It's not pressure. But you've understood the truth. You've understood that you're either in Christ or you're lost. And, oh God, what about those who are lost? Have you lost that? Or can you say with Paul, I've got great sorrow and unceasing anguish. If your heart has got cold and it can happen to us all, ask God right now to touch your heart again. Ask God to warm you up again, to see it and to pray. And I say, I will pray because I'm concerned. We're in a city of half a million people. How many of those are in Christ? Not many. Oh, God. And then there's a nation. And then there's a continent and nations. Oh, God. Does it touch your heart? Come every Sunday, these flags around. Do you think, oh, God, reach these people? What do you think? Why do we have flags here? It's to, to touch our heart. Paul says, I'm deeply moved by this. I believe the truth. And what I believe about the truth breaks my heart. And I, I could wish that I lost my salvation. I've been reveling in the truth of salvation and all the wonders of it. The glory that's ahead is spoken about. It. I could sacrifice all of that if it meant my people were saved. And he prays. Hey, we've got some things to learn. Now, he's also got a very remarkable value system. Let me put it to you. If, if you were a church leader and someone came to you and said to you, Look, I don't know what to do with my life. I don't know what God wants me to do, but let, let me tell you something about me. And you say, yeah, yeah, come on, tell me. And they say, well, I've got great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. You would say, probably, well, I think it's obvious what you should do. God's put it in your heart. You're going to go to your own people. Of course you are. That's what's in your heart. That's what stirs you. That's what you're praying about. It's obvious what God's got for you. And if, if it were the, the Apostle Paul speaking to you, you would say you are clearly an apostle to Israel. It's obvious. It's what's in your heart. But actually, if you gave that advice, of course, you'd be wrong. Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, Galatians chapter 1, verse 14, or really verse 13. You've heard of my previous way of life, he says, my way of life in Judaism. How intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age. And was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. So there's his passion for Israel. But 
When God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Intensely zealous for Israel. Beyond many, he says, of my own age. And here, he says, I could wish I were cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. But God set me apart, called me to preach among the people who are not Jews, among the Gentiles. Conversion, being born again, having a new father, changed everything. He loved the traditions of his people. God says, no, I'm sending you elsewhere. We can very easily mistake our emotions, our preferences, prejudices even, for God's call. Remember what Paul said back in chapter 8 and verse 14. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Not led by your heart, not led by your preferences, not led by your emotions, led by the Spirit of God. Over the years, I've seen so many young people mainly, but not exclusively, who go on some kind of overseas trip. They see a new culture. They encounter something totally different, and it stirs them. Hey, this is so different from England or the United Kingdom. And it's different, different cultures. It's, not, it's different from the West. And you feel the, that they're stirred by it, fascinated by it, drawn to it. And I think, I think God's calling me there. Do you know, every year when we go on holiday, a two weeks holiday, I feel the call of God to that place. Because it's sunny, there's a beach. <laughs> and I really feel called here. I've been called to France more times than I can count. God called me to Sheffield. <laughs> we can be stirred by, by things we see, places we go to. An overseas trip, oh yeah. We see the need of the place. We see the absence of churches. Or, oh yes. Hey, our preferences, our emotions, that's not the call of God. Our preferences in the United Kingdom, our preferences for north or south, that's not the call of God. For the city or the rural communities, that's not the call of God. That's your preference. Paul had very strong preferences. His preference, his heart, his emotions, everything was the traditions of his people and he was cared about his people. God said, I want you to go out of Israel, I want you to go to the nations. And does he go reluctantly? No, he's a man of the Spirit. And so he says in Romans chapter 1, he says, uh, verse 15, that's why I'm so eager to preach the gospel to you who are at Rome. Yeah, God changes your value system. And we need to recognize the call of God. And it's not the same as a kind of holiday romance where I've been somewhere. Oh, this is wonderful. I think God wants me here. Well, no, that's it's great. I... As you'll know, those of you who've been here in a number of, uh, any length of time, you'll know I've been to India many, many times. And yeah, it's, it's difficult. 
in India. But every time I'm there, I remember the last time I was there, I was in Mumbai last, just last year. And uh, what caught me off guard, we suddenly started singing uh, the song that we sing here, thinking of Sheffield, greater things are yet to come in this city. And as we were singing it, there in Mumbai, and uh, we were on uh, about the third story of a building, and I was just looking out the window, rooftops as far as you could see, the slums, the whole thing of Mumbai. You think, oh, yes. And I guess every time, or most times I've been to India, I thought, I could end my days here, not because I could get a serious illness and die there immediately, but I think if God, you know, which could happen, <laughs> if God called me here, yeah, I've got a heart for these people. God hasn't called me there. He called me to Sheffield. You don't follow your heart. It's those who are led by the Spirit of God who are sons of God. Big mistake to just follow your heart. So say if someone came to you and said what Paul says here in the early verses of chapter 9, you think, that's definitely God's call. No, it isn't. That's your heart. We need to understand the call of God. How did Paul know the call of God? Well, of course, he'd come into a new family. The first family he joined was the church in Antioch. And there in that family, as he's with the family, through the family... The Spirit of God separates him for the work to which he has been called. We don't just follow our heart. We don't follow our prefer preferences and prejudices. Hey, there's security in being part of this new family. To have leaders who care for you and together with you can discern the will of God. That's how it worked for Paul. He, and God calls him and he goes gladly into what God has got for him. He's born again. He's a new creation, which means he's got a new family that cuts across family ties. So when God sends him to the nations, he doesn't say, no, I've got to stay at home. Oh, I can't go because it's my parents' anniversary coming. No, 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 no. God, our Heavenly Father takes precedence. Have you faced that challenge? Young people here, are you facing, what, what does life hold for you? How tied are you to your parents? Well, of course you honor them. Of course you care for them. But who, who's your father? Who is your heavenly father? What family is the most important one for you? God's family or yours? So then boils down to the question, who is most important, God or someone? He's got to be God. He's the Lord. He's the maker of heaven and earth. Have anyone apart from him. Hey, are you born again? Do you belong to God? Has he changed your heart? No, his call takes precedence. It doesn't change your affection. It's not you become cold-hearted towards your family. Paul here clearly is not cold towards his nation, his brothers according to the flesh. Yeah, but he's got new brothers. He wants to go to those brothers. The call of God brings you into a new family, new birth, brings you into a new family. And in that family, you get a new passion, new concerns, so you get hold of the truth. You're not just learning doctrine. Of course, we want to learn doctrine, but it's doctrine that thrills and informs our minds, but it stirs your heart. 
Oh God, what about those who are outside? What about those who are trapped in false religion, trapped in addictions that they can't break out of, trapped in atheism, intellectualism? What, oh God, I can't just... I, I'm thrilled with the family, but the family is here with a mission for the world. And, oh God, it's the world outside. We've got to reach them. Passion. Passion. Paul's got it. So much so that, well, if it were possible, he would sacrifice his salvation. It's not possible. There's only one sacrifice that's been made, and Christ has made that. But he cares. And he's got a new value system. He's following the Spirit. He's mobilized because he's free from other ties. And he's motivated by the truth. And so he's going. God wants a church that's mobilized. Hey, we are here for God. He takes precedence. We're not just going to be absentees all the time because of family. No, we're in a new family now. We're committed. We're part of this body. Right, we're here now with a passion to reach this city. And we're here with a passion to reach the nations. And nothing and no one's going to stand in the way of that. Are you there? Is that what your heart is? And then it's not what I want, but what he wants. Hey, if, you, if you're born and bred Sheffield, what if God called you to the south? <laughs> What? The South? Yes, there is life in the South. And of course, I can say that because I come from the South. But many people in the South, many people in the South say, the North. You know, as you, 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 you come up the M1, just out of London, it just says, the North. It's up there somewhere. Have you ever seen that old map from many years ago? It's mainly about towns in the South. And then the North, it says, here be dragons. <laughs> what they think <laughs> prejudices no we'll go where God says we'll hear him it's not what I like it's what God says Paul is obeying God Haley's early verses set the tone for all the things he's going to discuss and as we get into those things it will maybe stretch our minds but let's remember this it's about caring it's about wanting to reach people it's about pleading with God for those who it doesn't look as if God has called. Hey God, oh God, we call on you. If it were possible, change your mind. Oh God, save these people. Is that where your heart is? It's where Paul's heart is. Let's pray.